From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. He never lost sight of how he was a Jew and that he was an heir to this extraordinary tradition and these extraordinary texts, and those became his guiding light. The fact that he actually used them in the social context for social and political change is why we made the film about him. But one thing was consistent about Heschel is he never lost the sight of what is the grounding, what's the foundation of what gives him the reason to behave and to act the way that he must. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Martin Doblemeyer. He holds degrees in religious studies, broadcast journalism, and honorary degrees in fine arts and humane letters. Since 1984, he's produced and directed more than 30 films focused on religion, faith, and spirituality. Over the years, he's traveled on location to more than 40 countries to profile numerous religious leaders, spiritual communities, heads of state, and Nobel laureates. His films explore how belief can lead individuals to extraordinary acts and how spirituality creates and sustains communities and how faith is lived in extraordinary ways. Today, we're going to be talking about his upcoming film, Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story, which is being released across the nation on public television in the month of May. Martin Doblemeyer, it is wonderful to have you back. Welcome to Things Not Seen. It is nice to be back, David. Thank you for having me. So I want to start out by just saying that the film itself is gorgeous. I have watched it a couple of times. You were kind to give us a screener. And I just want to say that the quality of it is so superb, both in terms of the storytelling, but also in terms of the visuals. And as we move further in our conversation, I want to ask you some technical questions about the film. But before we get into that, I want to make sure that listeners are aware of the subject matter of this documentary and who it is that we're talking about. It's mentioned in the documentary Spiritual Audacity that Heschel is probably the best known Jewish thinker of the 20th century in the West. And yet, almost 50 years after his death, I would venture to say that probably some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with his name. And so I want to start with a particular moment. It's a moment that is there in the Catskills. There's a celebration going on of the life of Abraham Joshua Heschel. He's receiving an award. There are luminaries and scholars from across the Jewish community who are there to honor him. And then in walks the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. there in this event in 1968. Let's start there. What is Martin Luther King doing in this Jewish gathering in the Catskills in 1968? Uh, well, that's a great place to start, David. Um, well, actually, Heschel is there at the invitation of the Jewish community to honor Heschel because the Jewish community was absolutely aware of the friendship, the deep abiding friendship that had grown out of the turmoil of the 60s between their, this Martin Luther King Jr., the, the famed leader of the civil rights movement, who was probably at the time the most 
important social justice changer of the society in America at the time. He had won the Nobel Prize for Peace already. And he was being honored by a, a large assembly of conservative Jews. I'm sorry, that they, they were there to honor Abraham Heschel. And who better to do that than Martin Luther King Jr. to come in and do that? And there's this wonderful picture uh, that we have in the film of the two of them, both holding the award. And when King walks into that assembly up in the Catskills to honor Abraham Heschel, the entirety of the body of people, the, the mostly rabbis, conservative rabbis who were there, all stood up interlocked their arms and sang, we shall overcome in Hebrew. And for that moment, they said that there were tears in the eyes of Martin Luther King Jr. He, he realized that the bond that had been created between the Jewish community in America and the African-American community in America was extraordinary. And the, just the notion at a time in the 1960s when there were so many divisions, so many breakdowns, and, and how religion was always for so many years, siloed into your own particular denomination, African-Americans, by and large, Christians. Here is a Jewish assembly of conservative rabbis who decide to stand up and honor their person. But as they walk in, here's Martin Luther King Jr. And they stand up and to a person, apparently, they, they wanted to honor King in their own particular way. And so this is just an example of the friendship, the wonderful friendship that had developed between King and Heschel. And, and I think in many ways, I, I, I do, we don't want to take away anything from Abraham Heschel. I realize that in the American way of thinking that Heschel has this notoriety now because of his friendship with Martin Luther King Jr., because Heschel was on the front lines during the important marches in Selma. But the truth of the matter is Heschel is a really an iconic figure in his own. And that's what we tried to unpack in the film to say, yes, there was this extraordinary friendship. That's really an American story, but also Heschel is an extraordinary figure in his own right. Well, and, and we'll certainly get into some of those extraordinary aspects of Heschel's life. But let's linger here for just a moment before, because this event in 1968, where King walks in and, and everyone locks arms and sings, We Shall Overcome, that great civil rights song in Hebrew, that's an extraordinary moment. But that's not the first time that Heschel and Dr. King meet. They have had a friendship now at that point for several years. Talk to us about the first time that they met. Where did Dr. Martin Luther King and Abraham Joshua Heschel meet for the first time? Well, the very first time they met is in Chicago. You should find that of interest. <laughs> they actually meet in Chicago. It's January 1963. It's the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And with all the civil unrest that was happening in America, the racial tensions that were that was sort of spilling out onto the streets in America in 1963. It was decided that the religious leaders of the country would come together in Chicago and address this issue of religion and race in America. And Heschel's invited to be a principal speaker. And I think Heschel's already got attraction in American awareness. He's got articles that have already come out about him in Time magazine. His books are starting to get more traction in 1963. And so he's becoming a major figure. So he was a logical candidate to speak on behalf of Jewish interest in the civil rights, race and, and religion storyline. But Heschel unloads at this conference. He just goes for it. He says that racism is Satanism. He says this is not the first gathering of religion and race. He says the first time it, it actually happened was in my tradition when Pharaoh met with Moses. And the truth of the matter is that Pharaoh has not conceded yet. And that's what we're dealing with in America today. And he then he goes on to quote the, the journalist and the abolitionist, the suffragette, William Lloyd Garrison, and said that we will not compromise. We will speak as if we have within us the truth, and we will not 
yield an inch. And I think this kind of language coming from a Jew standing up speaking to a religious body. So a Jew meeting that this is a, a minority sect in America, a small minority of the American religious population. But Heschel stands up there with his accent. For him, English is the fourth, maybe the fifth language, depending on how you figure. And he's totally at ease. He's an immigrant who stands up with absolute confidence, totally at ease, and delivers this powerful message. I, I think it just shocked Martin Luther King Jr. And it was at that moment that the two of them connected and created what John Lewis would later say was not only a friendship, but a brotherhood between the two. Because I think they immediately saw within each other that both of them, in a sense, had come from religious royalty. King himself, of course, was the descendant of prominent Baptist ministers. Heschel comes from a tradition of hundreds of years of rabbinic royalty. So he's got a posture and a delivery about him that has all the confidence in the world to be able to stand up to an audience, which he represents a minority, and be able to deliver a message like that. And, and I think King understood it and saw within Heschel himself the power to be able to say this person is an important ally for us in the civil rights movement. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the filmmaker Martin Doblemeyer. He is talking to us today about his most recent film, Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story, which is debuting across the nation on public television in the month of May. Well, one of the things that Martin Luther King Jr. and Abraham Joshua Heschel find that they have in common is a love and a study of the prophets. And I, I would love to find out a little bit more about that because Heschel wrote probably the most quoted work on the prophets in the English language, but also Martin Luther King Jr. was a preacher who preached oftentimes from the Old Testament prophets. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about how they found that connection and the fruitfulness of that connection. Well, it, there's no question that for Heschel, the whole concept of the prophets had become really a life study for him. He first begins the study in, in the early 1930s while Heschel is living in Germany in the 1930s. So he was born in Poland, but his academic studies came to fruition, really, at the University of Berlin in Germany. So his, for his doctoral degree dissertation, he decides that he's going to do a writing on the prophets and sort of an in-depth dive in the prophets. And so that's where it begins for him. And for, the, for him, the prophets become a study of how we need to relate, how as human beings, we have the prophets as the conduit between God and the human race. And that, I think, becomes the central driving force for how he frames his whole understanding of God and the relationship to God. And he will say that it's, what the prophets taught him from the very beginning was that he has to be involved in the plight of man, humanity on, on this earth, and to take upon ourselves the pain that God feels as he witnesses how we hurt each other, that God is deeply wounded as he sees how injustices are happening, human being to human being. Now, this becomes a, a life study for him, but it's not until the 1960s, uh, 1962 actually, that Heschel decides this work that I wrote in the 1930s while Hitler is rising in Germany. And I can put that in the context of writing the prophets, the story of the prophets in the early 1930s in Germany as Hitler's rising. He's now in the 1960s, the early 1960s, witnessing all this social unrest around, around civil rights. And he decides it's time for me to go back and rewrite in English and release in English and publish in English 
the book on the prophets. And that's the version that becomes important for, for Martin Luther King Jr. Well, let me ask a follow-on question to that. So in the 1930s, the context in which he's writing this dissertation on the prophets is in some ways a political reaction to what's going on in the German Christian church at the time. And so I think it'll help our listeners to understand what the German Christian church was doing with the Old Testament during the rise of Hitler. Yeah, it's a tragic story, really. Ultimately, under the Nazis, what German Christians were doing was finding ways to solidify themselves politically with the National Socialists and begin slowly at first, but then more concretely as it went along, to remove the old, what we would, what Christians call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible from the sacred text, calling it a Jewish text. It was unacceptable as far as they were concerned. So now, slowly but surely, that's coming out of mainstream religious thinking in Germany at the time. And as Susanna Heschel, the daughter of Abraham Heschel, would say, this took away one of the most important weapons that Christians could have used in standing up to, uh, to the growth of Nazism. They chose to turn their back on the prophets, and, and that actually was done as a tragedy for what they actually saw happening later on in in the growth of Germany, but they did not have that weapon of the, the story of the prophets and the, what Heschel calls the divine pathos of the prophets, that sense of what are we doing to ourselves? What, how will we fail to sort of be the people that we're supposed to be in the eyes of God? Well, and what's interesting to me about this is, and you note this in your film, Spiritual Audacity, for most of his career, Abraham Joshua Heschel was a professor of mysticism. And oftentimes we think of mysticism as being this kind of ethereal, otherworldly stuff. But he seemed, and your documentary shows this again and again, he seemed always to want to ground whatever he was talking about, whether it was recovery of the prophets or some sort of mystical piety, he wanted to ground it in the actions here and now for concrete persons. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that dynamic that you saw between his mystical side and what I would want to call his more political side. Well, there was a mystical component to Abraham Joshua Heschel. I think that's undeniable. I think it comes out of a, a Kabbalah sense of his notion of Hasidic Judaism. It's a sense of the beauty of ritual, poetry, but he has a very personal sense of God. He is a theologian, but God is so much more than somebody buried in theological texts. He gets it. You can, and, he, and when you watch the interviews with Heschel, you can see in his eyes, he has a connection to God. And that's what I think from a filmmaking point of view, attracts me. People who help me on a personal level unpack who God is, the mystery of God in the world, I, I think do us a great service. Even at the beginning of the film, I have this quote that he did in 1971 in an interview he did on ABC where he says, I believe in God. I, I believe in, in a merciful God that will have mercy and pity on us far more than we deserve. And to see the clip, you just get a sense that there is a connection between this man and, and the God that he believes in. So yes, he is a man of, of language, of poetry. Some people misconstrue his theological depth because they think it's just poetic language. Oh, there goes Heschel again using poetic language, and they want to dismiss him. So he was not always revered within what we would call the intellectual circles of Judaism who want to say, listen, let's get serious about Torah studies. And here's Heschel sort of musing on about the wonders of God and divine pathos and these kind of notions. Is that mystical? In some ways, I guess it could be described as mystical, but the truth of the matter is he's pretty hard to define, Heschel. And that's what I think that makes him compelling. He at one point answers somebody's question. They say, well, what kind of Jew do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself a conservative Jew, a reformed Jew? And he said, I'm not a Jew looking for an adjective. 
I believe in the God that's been revealed to us in the text and the God that I see alive and working every day in the world. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with the filmmaker Martin Dobelmeyer. He's made over 35 films in his career, oftentimes focusing on spiritual leaders and Nobel laureates and spiritual communities. Today, we're talking about his most recent film, Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story, which is going to premiere on public television across the nation in May. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years of these sorts of conversations, all available for your listening pleasure at no cost. Today we're talking to Martin Dobelmeyer. He holds degrees in religious studies, broadcast journalism, and honorary degrees in fine arts and humane letters. And since 1984, he has produced and directed 35 films focused on religion, faith, and spirituality. Today, we're talking about his most recent film, Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story, which is going to be premiering on public television stations across the nation in May. Well, let's look at the title of this latest documentary, Spiritual Audacity. That seems to be a, a pretty bold statement, and I wonder where does that title come from, and how does it relate to Abraham Joshua Heschel? Well, as a filmmaker, you're always looking for a bold title, right? <laughs> that's something that's going to capture people's imagination right off the bat. And it, I always had it in the back of my mind to call it spiritual audacity, even from the, even before we began to just launch into the making of the film. And it actually comes from a telegram in 1963 that Abraham Heschel wrote to John Kennedy, President John Kennedy. There had been a conference, as we talked about earlier, in Chicago on religion and race. Kennedy was not there at that conference in 1963. But in the summer of 1963, in June of 1963, he wanted to have a similar kind of conversation in the White House. So he sends out telegrams to key people that he wants to make sure come to this conference on religion and race at the White House, to which Heschel accepts the invitation to come, and he returns with a telegram basically saying, Mr. President, I really strongly recommend that you consider calling this a time of an emergency. We are in a moral crisis right now, and the times call for moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. And that's part of how I, want, I wanted to use the title, because I think in many ways, the notion of spiritual audacity as a buttress to what's happening socially and politically in the world that he was living in, and I think, honestly, for our world today, the same exists, that he had the courage to write that, and they held that conference in the White House. Well, and this, I think, speaks to exactly the way that you present Heschel throughout your film, Spiritual Audacity. He was unafraid to speak and unafraid to speak the truth that he knew, the prophetic truth, in any situation, whether he was talking to Jewish leaders, whether he was talking to civil rights leaders, whether he was talking to presidents. So my impression from your film is that part of that spiritual audacity came from what he had observed and lived through in Europe. 
when he was able to come to the United States, he had relatives who were left behind in Germany and in Central Europe who suffered mightily. And he watched not only the world, but also many of his fellow Jewish people do nothing. And I'm wondering what sort of impact you think that had on him as you were making this film. What did you learn about how that experience shaped Heschel in his ability to speak with this kind of spiritual audacity? I think uh, central to Heschel's thinking, and he says it many times, is that one of the greatest evils we face in the world is the evil of indifference. And that's what he really saw happening with the rise of Nazism in the 1930s which actually affected him personally. In 1938, October of 1938, he's in Germany. He's already been identified as somebody of concern. He's writing and his books are not going to be published in German, not going to be published in Germany. And so he's arrested, exiled to Poland, and eventually makes his way to the United States in 1940. But before the war is over, he will lose his mother and three sisters three sisters to the Holocaust. They don't all die at the same time, but in the end, his mother and three sisters are lost. And so nobody has to speak to Abraham Heschel from a textbook about notions of indifference. He understands that. And I think he was deeply, he was, he's transformed. While he's in the United States, he's campaigning, joining other Jews who also have people back in uh, Germany or throughout Europe. It's not just Germany, it's throughout Europe that are endangered or have already been lost. And so he's trying to raise awareness in the United States. The United States, I will say, historically did not do what it should have done, either to accept Jewish immigrants, people who were fleeing what was happening in Europe and coming to the United States. We tried to talk about that in the film. America did a pitiful job in terms of opening the doors at that time to Jews coming into this country. Uh, and it certainly did not identify the liberation of the camps as an immediate crisis. The Allies simply did, you know, they kept on the program that they had, the military program that they had. And so as the camps were being liberated one at a time, there was no advanced commitment to focus on liberation of camps. It was simply just one more effort on the part of the Allies, which I, I guess we can understand. I guess we have to understand. But for, for Jews in America, watching what was happening, it was the most painful experience, I think, in their lives. But Heschel did not need anybody to talk to him about the sin or the evil of indifference. And that becomes a major theme for him throughout the course of his life. He talks about one of the lessons he learns right from the very early stages of his study is that the prophets teach you that you have to be involved in the suffering of human beings. That's one of the first lessons he says we learn from the life of the prophets. And that's what I think his whole life was dedicated to, ending indifference and being involved in the life of people and the suffering of people that he came across. Well, and you don't say this explicitly in your documentary, Spiritual Audacity, and Heschel doesn't say it explicitly, but the impression that I got watching the documentary was that in the aftermath of this horror, having lost family members, it seemed to me that Heschel almost took every day that he had as a gift and a mandate, that he realized that he had survived something horrific, and to simply go on as if life was normal was not a possibility, that instead he felt burdened almost. And again, these are my words, not yours, so feel free to adjust or correct in your impression. But my impression watching your film was that he felt the terrible burden of needing to speak because he understood that he had been 
almost preserved in the way that maybe Esther had been preserved for a time and to speak out and to say something. So I'm, as I begin to muse about this, I'm wondering, from your standpoint, having looked at all this material, am I understanding correctly what Heschel may have been feeling, or would you say it in a different way? I think, no, that's a good way to say it, David. I think that he understood that in order to be a person of faith, it meant responding fundamentally, first of all, to the idea that if you buy into the faith tradition, you understand and accept the idea that God is asking things of you. God is asking you to stand with those who are oppressed, to stand up against injustices. And he understood that without reservation. And he was willing to risk. I think that's a really important point that we try to bring out in the course of making the film. Uh, he doesn't go over so well when he first lands in the United States. He's going to a reform seminary in Cincinnati, a Hebrew union. And uh, he was grateful because they were the ones who actually were able to get visas for he and other Jewish theologians to get out of Germany at the time. But he doesn't go over so well at that particular, in that kind of experience. He's more conservative for them. And so it doesn't quite work out. He comes to Jewish Theological Seminary up in New York, which is right across the street from Union Theological Seminary. So that's a real think tank area of the city. And he's talking about mysticism. And so that's, he's not quite fitting in there. And now he's also going out and he's using his leverage, his notoriety, to campaign about the injustices that he sees in the world. And that does not bode necessarily well with his academic scholars at Jewish Theological Seminary. So throughout the course of his whole life, um, Heschel, I think, is really struggling to figure out exactly where he fits in. And he's looking for companionship and support uh, as he's doing this. It's not, a, it's not an easy task for him. But he, know, nevertheless, is absolutely committed to doing what he feels as though the, the text, the life of the examples of the prophets call him to do. And what's, what is the legacy for Jews, particularly for Jews in America, to fight this sense of indifference? We have to be willing to go and fight for the other, who may not necessarily look like us or believe like us, but where's the injustice that's happening to one person, it actually happens to all of us. And once we understand that, that's the call of the gospel, of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, as far as he was concerned, then that's something that will transform the way that you interact with other people in the world. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with the filmmaker Martin Dobelmeyer. Since 1984, he's produced and directed more than 35 films focused on religion, faith, and spirituality. Today, we're talking about his most recent documentary, Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story, which is going to be debuting on public television across the nation in May. So I want to raise up a tension that I saw in your documentary, Spiritual Audacity. And I'm going to draw the tension by giving two moments from your documentary. One is an interview with Heschel where he says that he would rather go to Auschwitz than to renounce his Judaism, that it's that central to his life. Okay, so that's one piece. But then also there's this moment where he's coming down and traveling to Selma to march with Dr. Martin Luther King. And when he gets off the plane, he's greeted by Jewish leaders in the South who are basically begging him, don't do this. You're going to make life so much harder for us and you get to go away, but we have to stay here. And so I want to live in that tension. Heschel's willingness to suffer for his own Judaism, but that moment where other Jewish leaders are saying to him, you are going to make us suffer. I, I wonder what you think about the contrast of those two moments. Those are good points because they actually happen relatively within the same time period. So uh, the first point, Heschel is accepted an invitation to work with the American Jewish Committee and go to Rome 
as this as the Roman Catholic Church is in the process of creating what we now know as the Second Vatican Council. And part of its mandate is to reimagine how Catholics should engage other religion, other faith traditions in a modern world. And so he's doing that on one side. And on the other side, he's now being invited by Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. He was loved not just by Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, Jesse Jackson, John Lewis, and Andrew Young, certainly all saw him as an embodiment not just uh, as a scholar of, but an embodiment of the notion of the prophets and having the prophets with them. And yet that came with its own liability. So the first one going over to Rome and to actually being part of the conversations about uh, how are we going to re-channel the, the notion of how Catholics deal with the rest of the world, the Catholics were open to doing that. But Heschel winds up taking a leading role in all of this. He does that because the Catholics assign a, a cardinal, a German cardinal, August Bayer to be like the shaper of a document that'll eventually be known as Nostra Etate, about how the Catholic Church will engage the other faith traditions in, in the rest of the world in a modern era. And these two men, Heschel and Bayer, become really good friends. There's a German connection. They have their conversations in German. But yet, at the same time, over the course of a couple of years, as that document, that historic document is unfolding, doesn't always unfold the way that Heschel and Jews would like to see it happen. Because, yes, the Catholics said, let's, let's think more in terms of collaboration with other faith traditions. That's an important thing. But hidden underneath that was always a sometimes not so subtle hope that Jews would get on board. They would convert to Christianity, that they would convert maybe to Catholicism. They would see the light. And Heschel saw that as a breaking point. That was unacceptable to him. I want to engage you as Catholics, as Christians, as my brothers but not at the expense of me giving up my faith. And he uses this famous line that I would rather go to Auschwitz than to give up my, my Jewish faith. So there he's accentuating the fact that I am a Jew. Deal with me as a Jew. Accept me as a Jew, as I accept you as a Catholic. And ultimately, in the end, he was one of the key shapers of the document that does not fall to Jewish conversion, but in fact affirms the creativity that's possible when Jews and Christians and Catholics in particular all work together. So he made great headway with that. He, he was a really important historic figure in the world of religion simply because of his influence on the Second Vatican Council. Now, at the same time that's happening back in the United States, he's connecting with the civil rights movement and being invited to these important marches in Selma, Alabama. But also remember, in America, Jews are an absolute minority. And they were concerned because just as the KKK was blistering in terms of how it handled African-Americans, it was no more lenient towards Jews. Jews were on the hit list with the KKK and, and, the, and the segregationists and the haters, just like, the, like black African-Americans. That creates a bond, of course, between should create a bond between Jews and African-Americans. But in fact, that the Jewish community, as it's been noted in the film, said, look, this is risky now when you come down here to raise these issues for us, Abraham Heschel. We have to live in this community. We have to continue to, to keep our synagogues open. And by you connecting with the African-American movement, the civil rights movement, this is going to endanger us. Uh, and that's historically what did happen. There was always a continuation of uh, retribution against Jews in America. He knew that, but that, that did not compromise his commitment to the civil rights movement. So you see both him affirming his Judaism in, in Rome and saying, look, we're going to make progress here, but I'm not giving up my Judaism. And in the United States, in the social concept, we, we have to do what we have to do as Jews, stand with African-Americans. And so 
there's going to be tension. There's going to be hell to pay for this in some cases, but we have to do this. Well, and this is just another illustration of the audacity that you're speaking of here, because in addition to writing that telegram to the president of the United States calling for immoral grandeur and spiritual audacity, when there's a revision document of what eventually becomes Nostra Aetate, there is at one point a line added in that says, and we pray for the conversion of the Jews. And at that point, Heschel goes and has a private audience with the Pope to argue against this. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, he had the audacity to go and talk to the leader of Catholicism face-to-face about this and to make his case. Tell us a little bit about that situation. Yeah, that's a great point, because I guess you, you wouldn't see a Catholic do, have been, being as audacious as being able to do that. But I think it was already understood within the Rome community that whatever Heschel's going to do, he's going to do for the best interest of all. And that he is, this is a scholar, somebody who has to be taken seriously, and he speaks with authority. I think, like I said earlier, that Heschel is, he comes from this hundreds-year-long dynasty of rabbis. People just had a sense about him that he was a scholarly man, he, he knew exactly what, what his traditions were, and he was going to stand there and he was not going to be pushed around. I think they understood that right from the beginning. But at the same time, the Catholic Church decided that this is our gathering. We're going to have to do what we're going to do in the midst of all this. But they let Heschel come in. They had, he had the meeting at the time with Pope Paul VI, and Paul heard him and understood what was being called for. Paul VI, as we say in the film, at that time would not commit to removing any language about the notion of the conversion of the Jews, but in a sort of a political move, decide, well, we have committees that should be gathering and discussing this, and I want to leave this to the committees, but thankfully the committees themselves came to the conclusion that we're going to drop this important notion of the obligation of Catholics to convert Jews to Catholicism. I'm old enough, David, to have grown up in a time where I was listening to language. I went to Catholic school. I I heard language where Catholicism, the the Roman Catholic Church, was the only way to heaven. All others were misguided, had failed to come around, had had missed the boat 2,000 years ago. And even though I was never exposed, because I grew up in New York and a lot of my friends were Jewish, I was never exposed to outright anti-Semitism or anything. But in the Catholic schools, you were taught that Catholicism was the only way. That's, that's not the case you know, anymore. I think, thank God, we've, we've changed. One of the, I think there's been major progress, I think, as a result of that document, Nostra Aetate. It's an historically important document in the world of religion. I was thinking the other day that 2018, we had the tragic shootings at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. And right after that, Pope Francis makes a public statement that uh, we stand with the people at Tree of Life, that the, the tragedy there hurts us as Catholics and everyone around the world as well. And I just don't think you would have heard that kind of support before a, a document like Nostra Aetate had opened up the gates for the possibility of one faith traditioning, not only acknowledging the validity of another faith tradition, but Catholics in particular acknowledging that these are our brothers and sisters and that we have to stand with them. So that's that's just one small example. But we've made great progress, I think, in, in terms of interreligious conversation and dialogue. Well, one of the comments that Heschel makes or is made about Heschel in your documentary, Spiritual Audacity, is that Heschel really comes to believe that God delights in this diversity of worship and that God delights in the fact that there are Muslims and Jews and Catholics and other types of Christians and Hindus. And and I wonder how deep do you think that went? Did, did Heschel really believe 
that God was delighted with the, probably today in the 21st century, we see more diversity of religion than we've ever seen in human history. And I'm wondering, did Heschel really look at that and, and say, yes, all of this to the extremes, even to, to maybe the new religious movements? Like, how far would Heschel have taken that, do you think? That's a great question. I'm not sure how far he could have taken it. I think he was living his life mostly at the time, and we're talking about the 50s, 60s, and 70s, or the early part of the 70s. He, he dies in 1972. So you only have a historical record of what Heschel was thinking and doing up into 1972. But I think he was mostly thinking in terms of institutional religious communication and dialogue. But I think he really did believe what we say in the film. He believed that God really did want to be worshipped in different languages, in different ways, uh, in different religious tra uh, traditions. So I, I think there's nothing in his body of work, in his writings, that would think anything else. He was a Jew to his core, never left that. But at the same time, I think he was one of the one of the early believers that we need to think this thing through a little bit more outside of our own silo, our own religious silo, and see the goodness and the possibilities. Now, that, of course, is coming, again, uh, from somebody who's speaking on behalf of a faith tradition that's a, a minority in America. So the, we, you can't stay too isolated. You have to be out there and in the world, acting in the world. And in order to do that, you're going to be engaging with people of other faith traditions. But I, I think he was, that was, that's something that came very comfortably to Abraham Heschel. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Martin Doblemeyer. He holds degrees in religious studies, broadcast journalism, and honorary degrees in fine arts and humane letters. And since 1984, he's produced and directed 35 films focused on religion, faith, and spirituality. Today, we're talking about his most recent documentary, Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story, which debuts on public television across the nation in May. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years of these conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're speaking with Martin Doblemeyer. He holds degrees in religious studies, broadcast journalism, and also honorary degrees in fine arts and humane letters. Since 1984, Martin Doblemeyer has produced and directed 35 films focused on religion and faith. Today, we're talking about his most recent documentary, Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story. It'll be premiering on public television across the nation in May. 
I want to circle back to the look of this film, because you, particularly in the beginning of the film, you're bringing in civil rights footage, but actually civil rights footage sort of plays throughout the entirety of this documentary. I grew up watching documentaries on PBS like Eyes on the Prize, and I'm used to having this footage have a certain look. It's grainy. It looks washed out. And when I saw it in your film, Spiritual Audacity, it was so crisp and clean, gorgeous. The lines were sharp. And I'm wondering just about the the technical ways in which you literally brought new life into this footage that I've grown up with, but I've never seen with this clarity. Well, well, first of all, thanks. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really important uh, uh, part of the process for us. We do it as research and we study the theology and the text and everything, but also you have to, we're making a film. And so the visual component is absolutely critical. So we spend a lot of time uh, both on the still photographs. We fix every photograph, every single photograph that's in the film. I think it's 300 photographs that are in the film. Each one is treated. And then we spend a good amount of time too on the archival material. What's interesting is that if truth be told, there there are only so many um, camera angles and coverages of those particular historic moments in history. And then there are some availabilities for that material through houses that are doing a good job of um, converting it to high definition, uh, taking the original film footage that was shot in 16 millimeter, and then um, converting it to a high-definition platform, which is what we use. So we pay extra money, and we go to the houses that'll give us the high-definition quality. So we think it preserves it a, a little bit. But we're also, we shoot everything, all the interviews that I did for the film with Andrew Young, Jesse Jackson, and Cornell West, who I think is great in the film. We shoot all these now in 4K in the hopes that it'll do a little bit more to help extend the life of the film. We want the film to be around for the next 20, 25 years. As how much technical transformation has happened for the last 25 years, we anticipate that'll continue. So we want to make it as good as we possibly can right now in anticipation of the fact that the technology is going to continue to change. So we do the best we can to find the footage that we can get, find the best quality of that footage, and then do everything we can with the photographs. A a little background. One of the other sort of anecdotes about this is one of the people who actually has some of the best archival photographs is Susanna Heschel of her father and the family, of course. You know, theologians and writers aren't always always the most attentive to the quality of the photographs. And so we spent days at the home of Susanna Heschel, not only doing the interview with Susanna, uh, but culling through all the photographs, which she was pulling from different files and different boxes under the bed and everything else. And some of them, frankly, were not in the best shape. You could and we, there was quite a challenge for us. And the, even the average person looking at the photograph on the screen would say, oh, what's the matter with this photograph? So we take it upon ourselves and we process each one of the photographs. We put it through a system, spend hours on every single photograph to, to remove the, the lines in the photograph, to shading spots on the photograph, and then use it in the film. But then we also provide it back to Susanna. So that now instead of having to go and pull out the box of photographs underneath her bed to try and help any anybody who wants to tell the story of her father, she now has a file of the photograph and she can use that for as, as long as that file is available to them. So she doesn't have to go do that anymore. I want to ask you a follow on question now, not so much from the technical side, but from producer, director, storytelling choices. I was struck by the fact that the first several minutes of your documentary, Spiritual Audacity, I see faces that are African-American. 
I see Jesse Jackson. I see Andrew Young. I see John Lewis, all civil rights leaders who are talking. I see Cornell West and folks who are both civil rights leaders from the 1960s and contemporary African-American theologians and thinkers. And they're all talking about and introducing the ideas and the impact of Abraham Joshua Heschel. It struck me that it took several minutes before I began to see Jewish faces as well. And I wonder about the choice that you made to lead off and to frame the story in its initial moments with that sort of voicing. I think it's I think it's a beautiful, wonderful, impactful aesthetic and directorial choice. But I'm wondering about the thought process that went into that. I think that people like Jesse Jackson and certainly Andrew Young, John Lewis in particular, have just immense authority within the American culture. And their validation of how important Heschel was to the civil rights movement, how unique was his voice, how spiritually grounded was his notion, not only of the prophets, but of the call of the prophets that included them as African-Americans. His connection to the idea that the African-American community was following the example of Moses leading his people out of the desert into the across the Red Sea. All of those really validated Abraham Heschel. As you mentioned earlier on in the interview, maybe not that many people who would be listening to this broadcast or and people who would actually watch the film would maybe have heard of Abraham Heschel but don't necessarily know anything about him. I thought it was important as a filmmaker to introduce Abraham Heschel through their eyes and put him not at first as a theologian, but as a social reformer, as a political activist, as a transformer of culture, and to see how widely he accepted he was within the African-American community, how important his voice was. So that was clearly intentional to open up that way. And then we go on and we unpack who Abraham Heschel was and his roots and all of that, and then bring him back later on as his influence at the Second Vatican Council and the things like the Jewish, Jewish-Russian Jewish connection and all those things. But we wanted to open up with the civil rights story. Well, and what struck me, and you were behind the scenes, so I want to ask you specifically about this behind the scenes. On camera, I got the impression that these various leaders from the African-American community who, as you say, carry such weight within our culture, I got the sense that they were incredibly excited to talk about Abraham Joshua Heschel and that they felt a connection with him. Was that your impression working with them behind the scenes when you reached out to them and you said, I'd like to interview you about Abraham Joshua Heschel? Was their response with that kind of enthusiasm? Yes, absolutely. And of course, you have to appreciate the fact that all of them, when we talk about Andy Young and John Lewis and everybody, these are characters who are are getting older. And in John Lewis's case, he's already passed away. And so there was a sense of, of, I'm being careful about what time I spend dedicating to what efforts, and yet they still wanted to do it. I, I think they understood that so much of what happened was around that storyline of the connection of the Jewish, of the African-American religious communities connecting to the story of Moses and that the conduit becomes Heschel. And so they wanted to make that effort to be able to help unpack that for us a little bit. In a couple of cases, I had worked with them in the past. I had worked with John Lewis. I had worked with Andrew Young was part of a film I did on Reinhold Niebuhr. And so it wasn't that hard an ask or that not big a reach to be able to get them to do it, which is a matter of schedules. But I think they were on board right from the very beginning. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Martin Doblemeyer. He holds degrees in religious studies and broadcast journalism. And since 1984, he's produced 35 films focused on religion and faith. Today, we're talking about his most recent documentary, Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story, which is premiering on public television across the nation in May. 
Well, I want to circle back now to one of the central ideas that Heschel puts forward, and it's this idea of Sabbath and the the centrality of Sabbath, both to Jewish life, but also perhaps Sabbath as a gift, not only for the Jewish people, but for everyone. And there's a portion of your documentary, Spiritual Audacity, that you devote to, to Heschel's notion of Sabbath and also the way in which Heschel and his family practiced the Sabbath. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Well, Sabbath is a, a key theme, a law within Jewish tradition. But he writes this really incredibly important book, releases it in 1951. So know that this is a time in America, especially he's in America when he's writing the book on the Sabbath. And this is a time when Jews in particular are assimilating into American post-World War II life. And as a lot of people say, there, there was a sense that there was a reluctance within the American Jewish community to show your Jewishness. You were different. You worshiped on a different day. The, the majority of people in America being Christians, sat, Sunday was the day of worship. And Jews, for Jews, it's sat, the Sabbath, the Shabbat is Saturday. But he writes this wonderful book where he talks about the fact that six days a week, we live under the tyranny of space, the place that we're in dictates how we have to behave. Our hands are given over to what our souls on the, on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, belong to God. And when you give over in tyranny, the other days, you reserve that one day to give back to God. And the book becomes a, a really popular book because it affirms, it takes the principle of Sabbath, which is very Jewish, and yet he unpacks it in a way that really resonates with so many other faith traditions to say it's important for us to preserve our sense of, of who we are as individuals. What's been really interesting for me is that I did a series of films a, a number of years ago with Seventh-day Adventists. And Adventists um, are a Christian faith tradition, but they too honor Saturday as the Sabbath, and they take it very seriously. And so we're already getting calls from people within the Adventist community saying, you know, we want the film, we want to see the film. Heschel's an important person for us. We were reading Heschel in our Sunday school, in Sabbath school, and he was an important figure for us. So it's not just a, a story that sort of pertains to Judaism. It's a story that really actually gets wider to that. And he doesn't do it really as an affront to technology. It's not that he's against the modern world. It's that he's saying to you, the Sabbath gives you the armor that you need, the, the, the sense of self that allows you to operate fully in the modern world. That's the difference. There's a beautiful story that gets told by Abraham Joshua Heschel's daughter, Susanna Heschel, in the course of your film, Spiritual Audacity, where she talks about lighting the candles and then walking to the sofa and sitting with her father on the sofa and watching the sunset. But if you could, for my listeners, paint a little bit more of that picture. So what does she say about that particular moment? What is she seeing when she looks out that window? Well, Susanna Heschel, who, who like her father, is really, really comfortable using poetic and descriptive language, dramatic language. And she was trying for us, for me, to be able to recapture the emotional moments that were happening every Sabbath. She would say, too, that her father said, it's not just the Sabbath itself that's sacred. It's all the preparation and getting ready for it that really prepares the heart for the moment of the Sabbath that is the gift by God of God to us as people. And she would describe lighting the candles, going into their apartment. They lived up on the, on the Upper West Side of New York, not, like I said before, not far from Jewish Theological Seminary up on Broadway and 120th. But from their apartment, they had a view of the Hudson River, and they would watch the sunset, and she said it was mystical. And she would still describe it in a way that sort of transported you 
because she was being transported, just thinking about it. And you got a sense that this was such an important emotional moment for her as a young person. And what I find really interesting is she's recounting these moments and she was in her teens when a lot of this was happening, teens and earlier years. How many of us remember that whatever our parents were serving up to us in terms of formula of life, we were rejecting. If it came from my mother and father, I'm rejecting that. But in a sense, I think she understood the sincerity and the value of what her father was offering that family. And she bought into it and she said she's benefited for the rest of her life. Well, and I'm wondering now, as you have come to the end of this sort of era of filmmaking, because this, in some ways, this documentary on Heschel marks a kind of endpoint for you in terms of a set of films that you've been doing over the last several years. I'm wondering what you're taking away from the life of Abraham Joshua Heschel, either that you learned or that was deepened for you, that you're going to be carrying forward into this new period of discernment as you're figuring out what your next set of projects are. What did you learn from trying to tell the story of Heschel that has impacted you? Oh, that's a great question. I think starting off is, was part of it is the, the topic that you and I just talked about a moment ago. As a person who was born and raised Christian, I think the sacredness of the Sabbath uh, has been diluted in the, in the American popular culture. And so in some ways, my wife and I were talking about this more and more, how important that notion was. And I think in some ways, it's because I've been involved in the Heschel story that we've, be, we've begun to remember how important the notion of Sabbath is. A little different now because of COVID, I understand, but at the same time, it doesn't diminish the notion of Sabbath being an important day. I think the word conviction comes up a lot for me. I think Heschel is, if he's anything, he is he's convinced that the God that he believes in, the God that he sees so clearly, the God that he sees manifested through the prophets, the connection of that divine pathos of the prophets, tells him that something is asked of us, not only him, but all of us, and that we are called, if we're going to be people who believe in God, God calls us to do something, to take action. And, and I think that resonates with me deeply, and that's something that I'm, I'm taking with me, and I want to keep that alive and carrying in my heart for the rest of my life. And, and the third thing is that I have to say that we look at these people sometimes as spiritual radicals. There was a lot of criticism for uh, Heschel within his own community that he's a spiritual radical, whatever that's supposed to mean. Same thing with Dorothy Day before that. She was a spiritual radical. Howard Thurman, Reinhold Niebuhr, they're all part of the same series that we're calling the prophetic voices of the 20th century, great figures. But one thing that is common among all of them is they took the study of their faith traditions seriously. These were people who were absolutely well-grounded in the sacred texts, in the philosophical, historical, sociological studies that had gone along with that. So these were people who were not simply responding out of emotions to what they thought were bad social moments or bad social history that was happening, but in fact, put them in the context of their faith tradition and saw a way forward to act. Heschel is that way in particular. He never lost sight of how he was a Jew and that he was an heir to this extraordinary tradition and these extraordinary texts, and those became his guiding light. The fact that he actually used them in the social context for social and political change is why we made the film about him. But one thing was consistent about Heschel is he never lost the sight of what is the grounding, what's the foundation of what gives him the reason to behave and to act the way that he must. Well, Martin Doblemeyer, I have to say again, I think that this film that you've made, Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story, is magnificent. It is 
consummate storytelling. I felt myself from the first moment drawn in about this figure that, as you say, I had heard about but didn't really know about. I found myself surprised at several points. I found myself enraptured by listening to his own voice and some of the stands that he was willing to take and the moral ferocity and audacity that he was able to bring to the public. But also, I just have to say, it's a beautiful film. You've done so well, both from the standpoint of the storytelling, but also just from visually pulling this together. I think that every listener should make sure to watch this film if they get the opportunity. And I want to thank you for taking the time to make it. But especially, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to us about it today. Well, this has been my pleasure. I always enjoy the conversations we have, David. Thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking today with Martin Dobelmeyer. He is the head of Journey Films, and he holds degrees in religious studies, broadcast journalism, as well as honorary degrees in fine arts and humane letters. Since 1984, he's been producing and directing 35 films focused on religion, faith, and spirituality. He's been talking to us today about his most recent film, a documentary on Abraham Joshua Heschel called Spiritual Audacity. It's premiering on public television across the nation in May. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.